0: Let's pray before we um, turn to it. Lord Jesus, we thank you very much for um, for giving us, um, through your apostles, uh, the the Christian message. And as we deal with some very basic but important truths this morning, teach us, we pray, by the power of the Spirit. Be at work among us, applying this to each of our lives, as inevitably it will need to be applied. We ask it for the glory of Of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now quite recently, a number of friends and um, family members have had to go on speed awareness courses. Some of you may have been on them, I don't know. (laughs) One relative was telling me about the conversation among the participants in this speed awareness course that he had been on, and when he arrived, sort of the pre-chat beforehand, and everyone was all going, well I had no idea I was speeding. Uh, or, um, or when everyone else was doing the same speed, and, um, well, I never usually speed, and um, all this was going around. Now, to my shame, all I can say is that it's amazing that I have not been called onto a speed awareness course, uh, so I'm not judging anybody when I say well, something I think we'll all agree with, which is that human beings do not like being confronted when they are in the wrong. I think we can all agree with that. Is just a basic human reality. A sinful human reality, but a basic human reality. Now, this morning I want to answer one basic question, which is this. How does God want us to respond when he confronts us with our sin? How does God want us to respond when he confronts us with our sin? It's an important question. It concerns us all because God has not left his disobedient children to go our own way without confronting us he confronts us in love yes he confronts us and to save us yes that's true but it would be naive of us to think that what he has said in his law in his gospel and through in the person of his son Jesus Christ would not conflict pretty fundamentally with what we think is okay with our lives I'm talking to all of us and myself included It would be naive to think that he would just go, oh, yes, nice, nice, good, well done. And only that. It's only to be expected that he would confront. Now, this is uh, why the question's important. How are we to respond? He does confront if we're open to hear. How are we to respond well 2 Corinthians 7 gives a very clear answer. How should we respond? Well look at, if you've got it open still there, look at verse nine. Paul says to the Corinthians, "I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance." Or again, verse 10, we get the very similar phrase, "Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, etc, etc. How does God want us to respond when he confronts our sin? He wants us to respond with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, what made it uh, necessary, this, we've got to do a bit of work on the context of two Corinthians, what made it necessary for this confrontation between uh, God and the Corinthians? Now, the background is actually quite tricky to piece together. If you may remember about a month ago, I preached with a map on the screen and um, uh, laser pointer and showed you paul's travel plans and all the rest of it so i'm not going to go into all of that again you can find that on on the on the website if you want to here's a boiled down version basically paul had planted a church in corinth a few years earlier maybe five years earlier since then though lots of general problems had reared up in the church and there was one specific person in the church who had created a major scene that the church just hadn't dealt with properly Now, Paul had written a pretty strong letter to confront some of these problems, and it must have been a pretty bitter pill for them to swallow some of the messages in the letter. Um, Discipline that person. He says, grow up out of your spiritual immaturity. Sort out your sexual morality, he said to them. Straighten out your false understanding of the gospel. It was hard to take. Now remember that Paul is an apostle, that is one of Jesus' authorised spokesmen. So his letter to them was not just another human opinion among others. It was not just him saying, well I think really you should probably do this more and do that less. No, this was Jesus Christ through his apostle addressing them. question is though, how would they respond? Now Paul was absolutely longing to know how they would respond. So he sent his colleague, Titus, who was mentioned in that reading, he sent him to find out. So Titus goes off to Corinth. Meanwhile, Paul travels up north through what is now Turkey. It was then Asia, Asia Minor, he, but no Titus. Titus. Titus hadn't come around to meet him. And so he set out by sea from the north, north, uh, east, uh, northwestern coast of Turkey. He sets out across to what was then called Macedonia. Now we would call it northern Greece. He set out to there and wandering around Macedonia, eventually he found Titus. He was on tender hooks the whole way until Titus arrives. He meets Titus and thankfully to Paul's utter joy and relief, the news from Corinth is good. So you get that. Just look at it again. Verse four, you see this joy and relief. Verse four, Paul says, my joy knows no bounds. Verse seven again, my joy was greater than ever. Verse 13, by all this we're encouraged. So the thing is, Paul's overjoyed because the Corinthians had responded to God's confrontation. How? With a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Now that was Paul's context. Before going any further, um, I want to say something about our own context. You know, human beings have always been slippery and evasive when it comes to God confronting them. You just need to read the account of the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3 to realize that Adam and Eve were pretty keen not to let the Lord land any blows on them. It's his, her fault, his fault. Blah, 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 blah. They did anything they could to evade um, responsibility. The wonderful um, American writer Rosaria Butterfield um, has ri- written a comment on this I love. She says, she says one ver- this is a quote from her, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. She says, my sin actually feels like life to me, (laughs) plain and simple. And then she quotes, she um, um, makes a reference to John Calvin, the the great uh, Christian writer. She says, my heart is an idol factory. And that's from Calvin. And then she adds her own bit. She says, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Is that the human condition? It's the human condition I know from my own life. (laughs) an excuse-making factory. So that has always been true. That is just how human beings are. But in contemporary Western culture, um, we've created a a sort of a a mental, um, imagined reality for ourselves where we don't even feel the need to make an excuse. We've found basically an ingenious way to prevent any kind of confrontation between us and God. I'll tell you how it works. Because you will have come into contact with this idea. Even if you reject this idea yourself, you will have come into contact with it. This is the big idea. is that, basically, what is true differs from person to person. What's true differs from person to person. And, and it depends. The truth depends on what seems um, right and, um, and okay to other, to, to me. That's my truth, you've got your truth, they've got their truth, they've got their truth. That's the, that's the sort of one of the, one of the fundamental ideas of our, of our contemporary Western culture. Now, if you think about it, in that setting, what that means is basically to be a decent person in our culture, you, the, the, the rule is you, you are never to certainly never confront the way somebody else is, is, is acting or living and, and probably, if you're really decent, you don't even have a, a negative opinion about it. You just accept it, because it's their truth, and you've got your truth, and they've got their truth, and so on. Which is extru- and, and, so, and now that thinking seeps into the churches and into Christian thinking as well, where we basically think, well, okay, God is good. Okay, that's a sort of a basic place to start. God is good, isn't he? He's a decent chap, or, or, or being. Surely he's a decent chap. So that means... Of course, he would play by the rules of our culture. And therefore, all he can ever do, really, is affirm my choices. That's the, that's the way we think. It's the way I think. It's just, I drink it, we drink it in the water. It's the air we breathe. We just assume that if, if God's there, it's impossible even to imagine ever confronting us. He would never have a problem with the way I live my life. Well, thankfully... One nudge from God's Spirit can blow all of that apart and can leave us standing convicted before God's Word. And that is precisely where the Corinthians stood as they received Paul's letter. That is where they stood. How does he want us to respond when we're in that state? He wants us to respond with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, it's time to explore what that means. We're going to focus on verse 10. That's our sort of, um, you know, anchor verse. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leads to death. Now, did you notice there how Paul describes the godly sorrow of the Corinthians in contrast to its kind of fake counterfeit, shadow? worldly sorrow godly sorrow leading to repentance contrasted with worldly sorrow so we're going to develop that contrast a little bit as we try to understand this godly sorrow so godly sorrow is contrasted here with worldly sorrow godly sorrow basically godly sorrow is sorrow for our sin out of an awareness of how offensive it is to god that's that's godly sorrow it's a, so so I don't know if you've ever done this. Probably you haven't, because you. But I have many times. You made an absolute twit of yourself in some situation, and you drive home in the car or walk away from it. And you think, ah, oh, damn, oh, I made such a fool of myself. And then it suddenly occurs to you, and so and so was there. Your boss, or your, <laughs> or some particular person you uh, you you really respect, or, or you know someone you are hoping for some. Um, you know would think well of you and you walk away it's, and screwing up feels all the worse because they were there like oh, I can't believe it oh no and it's as it's as though your sorrow is then becomes in reference to that person oh how could I have done that in front of them well godly sorrow has a mind that's filled with with God and God is always there so godly sorrow for example says I lied Oh, and my father was there. My father and everyone was there, and I lied. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is, you know, I fill, I fill my, my mind with daydreams of, of, um, of satisfying myself with my possessions. Oh, and Jesus knows that I did it. Or, or I defile my body or my mind with immorality. Oh, and the spirit of God was grieved. And that's what grieves me, was that he was grieved. That's godly sorrow. Or... I slated that person out of sheer envy oh and god hates that that, shat, that breaks his law that provokes his heart he hates it oh godly sorrow this is this this is an important definition godly sorrow is our grief that we have grieved him that's godly sorrow it's our grief that we've grieved him but worldly sorrow is our grief that we have grieved ourselves do you see the difference? It's, it's light and day when you see the difference. Godly sorrow is grief that I've grieved him. Worldly sorrow is grief that I've grieved myself. And there are countless reasons that we don't like being caught out doing something wrong. Oh, we hate feeling ashamed of ourselves for whatever reason. Or the, the loss of reputation that's going to come. People are going to think I'm stupid or that I'm, or whatever. you think. Oh, no. And these other consequences that are going to follow. But God doesn't come into it. I just feel utterly sorry for myself that all these things have, have happened. So godly sorrow is felt in relation to God. And yes, it really does sting. And, but, but it's a hopeful sorrow. It's an incredibly hopeful sorrow because the same God whom we've grieved is also the, the same person who promises to forgive and restore. That's why godly sorrow is so full of hope. Okay, so godly sorrow. Second, let's move this forward. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. That is, to an actual change of mind and life. So do do you get this distinction? It's important. Is that sorrow is not the same as repentance. Sorrow is not the same as repentance. Feeling sorry is one thing. That may be important. It is important to an extent. But action is something else and action matters more. Now, I'm afraid I've learned this in married life. Um, when I do something annoying, now, I know that you struggle to believe that that could be possible, um, I can feel terribly sorry and apologize, profuse, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but, but if it stays at that and there's never any actual action that actually changes the annoying thing that I've been doing then all that apology turns out just to be empty, self-pitying grovel. The devil absolutely loves to keep us in that state of, of um, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so awful, I'm so awful, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful, I'm so sorry, I'm so awful, I'm so awful. C.S. Lewis um, knew how much the devil loved that. Many of you would have read his screw tape letters, there's a lovely quotation from that. You remember he's putting advice in the mouth of a senior demon who's advising a junior demon how to muck up the Christian life of a new, uh, of, of a new believer. And he writes this, he, the senior demon says to the junior demon, he says, as long as a person does not convert it into action, it doesn't matter how much he thinks about repentance. He says, let him go on wallowing in it. Let him do anything but act. But repentance acts. See, godly sorrow leads to different action, to a renewed way of thinking. And and interestingly, this is important as well, it's not driven by guilt. We make the change because we understand that the way we were is offensive to God. And so it offends us as well. Our minds are made new. This is literally what repentance means, metanoia, means thinking again, a new mind, having another mind on something. Because we look back and we think, no, I see that differently. I see that now how God sees it. That was absolutely out of order. I was quite wrong. Not going back there again. That's real repentance. So, worldly sorrow, of course, leads in a very different direction. Worldly sorrow, um, I know exactly where it leads, unfortunately, and I suspect you may do too. It sulks. It produces a kind of self-pity and self-defense. Because actually that's what it's all about. It's all about throwing up the defensive walls, slamming down the portcullis and saying no one touches my ego. That's, what, that's really what worldly sorrow is all about. It's about deflecting the, 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 the life-giving rebuke of others and of God ultimately. And it produces that kind of um, passive-aggressive non-apology. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's where godly sorrow leads. So the passive-aggressive non-apology, but it leads to no positive change. Okay, godly sorrow leads to repentance, uh, but we thinking about this more, we move on. Third, and repentance, according to verse 10, it says, and third, repentance leads to salvation. Okay, so godly sorrow leads to repentance, produces repentance that leads to salvation. Right, okay, I really want to make it clear here what this doesn't mean. This is so important. I, can't, I almost can't stress enough how important this is to understand. This does not mean that repentance or being sorry is the thing that merits or gets rewarded with salvation. It's not like God says, oh, what, what fantastic repentance that person has produced. How sorry they feel. Well, they have now become worthy of salvation. No, that is absolutely, that is the anti-gospel. That is the very opposite of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the whole point is salvation is a work of God. God does salvation. We don't. We get saved. He saves. It's only Jesus' shed blood that merits, deserves, gets rewarded with salvation. Uh, That's the, the, it's, it's, it's so important. And we receive that salvation as a gift. Through, uh, through trusting in Jesus Christ and receiving it. But then, what happens um, when a, 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 what happens when a person does receive salvation? Um, well, the amazing thing is that the gift of salvation comes to us, um, and in that gift, there are lots and lots of other sub-gifts, one of which is the gift of repentance. Um, repentance is a gift. To be able to turn from our sin is a gift. One great old English um, writer, one of the Puritan um, Puritans, who really went into this in a lot of depth, um, Thomas Watson, he wrote this: "Repentance is pure gospel grace. Re- repentance is a gift of God." See, when we receive salvation, bound up in that gift is the will and the power to le- lead a new life. It's a gift. So then, though, that, that then begs the question: what if, what if, when a person or church is confronted with the Word of God, there is no repentance. What happens then? What do you conclude? Well, what you conclude is this: you conclude that salvation has actually not been received. It can't have been because repentance is a necessary sign that salvation is present. You see? Now, I want to sort of swing around and fly past this one again because I've spoken to too many believers who've been sitting in church for years who wrongly think that it is the repenting, it is the being sorry that makes somebody worthy of being saved. That is a distortion of the gospel message. It is an utter distortion. It's a slavery and, at the same time, It is a um, a, a grounds often for self-righteousness. It is not how sorry we are that makes us saved. We cannot become worthy of salvation in any way. We never become worthy of salvation. That's why we need to be saved. We can't become worthy of salvation either by being good enough or by being sorry enough to earn it. Just think, how sorry would you have to be? There's an old hymn. Do you remember the hymn, Rock of Ages? Some of you will remember that great old hymn where the the author puts it so clearly. He says, even if my tears of repentance could flow forever, that wouldn't atone for sin. Thou must save and thou alone. See, salvation is the work of God. We cannot become worthy of salvation in any way. God saves us through Jesus despite our unworthiness. But, as we put our trust in Jesus to save us, if that's what we've done, then repentance will follow. God's Holy Spirit will make sure of it. See, God's Holy Spirit, one of the names of God's Holy Spirit is the Comforter. And he does, he does come in and bring tremendous comfort. But, he also brings another C word from the next chapter of John's Gospel. Conviction. He brings the conviction of our sin he confronts us with the word of god um, throughout our lives this is not a process it's not something that happens once for all at the beginning of the christian life it goes on and on and on through our lives as like an onion our layers are peeled back and he challenges us more and more you see the spirit convicts us of our sin and then he prompts in us godly sorrow and he will empower us in liberating repentance See, godly sorrow and repentance are sure signs that a person is saved. But they are not the grounds on which we are saved. Now that is a very, very important distinction. I hope that that sheds some light on it. If not, please talk to me. That is something we need to understand if we're to understand the good news that God has for us. Meanwhile, worldly sorrow, let's go back to that again, worldly sorrow is actually a sign that a person is not yet saved. If worldly sorrow is all there is, that person is not yet saved. The gift has not been received, the spirit is absent, and without conversion, there will be an everlasting state of unsalvation, which the apostle here describes as death. So just think of Paul, I sent this, this confrontational letter to the Corinthians, No, of course he's nervous about their response. See, when the word of God confronts a person or a church, their response will reveal their true spiritual state. No wonder then, Paul was so overjoyed to hear that godly sorrow had led them towards repentance. It confirmed that God had really saved them. They were really God's people. Now, I'm going to wrap this up in just a moment, but let me just, before I do, illustrate this with a very famous illustration um, that you may know already from the Bible um, of two men who both sinned catastrophically on exactly the same night. You know who I'm talking about? Peter, who denied Jesus and wept bitterly, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus and was seized with remorse. Both sinned, Both sorrowed. But one sorrow led to repentance and life, the other to despair and to death. See, just um, Peter's sorrow, just think of it, wasn't like Judas's sorrow. Peter's sorrow is godly sorrow. Peter's sorrow is is not, how could I have let myself down like that? How can I live with my shame? That wasn't Peter. Peter's response was, how could I have let him down? He must hate what I did. How I've grieved him. How can he ever forgive me? That's the godly sorrow. And that puts Peter in the most hopeful territory that Judas never entered. See, Peter knew that his sin was against Christ. And so he also knew that Christ is the one who has the authority to forgive and restore him. See, godly sorrow puts you in a place of hope. But Judas... He has no such hope because God actually is not in the picture. He, who, who, can, who can forgive Judas? Jude, Judas is the wrongdoer. So Judas is in no position to forgive himself. He's locked in, in, in his own self-referencing uh, um, headlock. And in the end, remorse leads him to despair. So how does God want us to respond when he confronts us with our sin? Answer, with godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, as I close, um, I, I, could, one thing I could do is summon us to rigorous self-examination. What's your repentance like? I'm not going to do that because I've learned over the years that that would be completely counterproductive. Um, it would crush those of you with sensitive consciences and it wouldn't touch those of you with consciences that need to be touched. Same, and I apply the same to myself. That's, that's, that's the reality about um, applying it in that way. I think what I'm going to do, I, I'm gonna tr- well, we've got to trust the Spirit of God to reveal the truth to each of us in his wisdom. That's The, the, we, we, the Spirit will reveal to us what needs to happen. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summon us instead to a clearer vision of the love, the kindness and the grace of this God who confronts us in our sin which is a much more productive way to go because, as Paul puts it elsewhere in the letter to the Romans, it is God's kindness that leads us towards repentance. That's what leads us and draws us to repentance, God's kindness. So, we've been studying 2 Corinthians this autumn. We're going to pause, hit pause on it today. We'll maybe come back to it in the new year. But what have we learned? We've learned, chapter 1, that God is the God of all comfort. The God who has promised to save and reconcile, forgive, Renew, enlighten, sustain, resurrect alienated people like you and me. We've learned that every one of these promises is yes in Jesus Christ. In him in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Jesus is shed blood. Um, uh, which Jesus shed his blood with the intention that your sins and my sins should never be held against us. But instead we can be counted righteous in God's sight, despite the fact that we're anything but in ourselves. And he delivers every single one of these gifts to the deepest part of our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he gives to us. It's this God who confronts us in our sin. So a God like this can't confront us with our sin in order to hurt us, but to heal us. He doesn't do it to destroy us, but to recreate us. He doesn't do it to limit us, but to set us free. So let's turn to him. Turn to him, to, to this God of all comfort. Ask him to confront you, to confront you in his kindness as need arises. And ask him to give you and me the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Let's pray. This is between each one of us and the throne of heaven. Spirit of God, apply this word to our hearts, we pray. and Give us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, both the awareness and knowledge of our own sin and also godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We ask this in the power of the same Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus.